Lord, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for the chance to come together, and I pray that you would show up in an incredible way and that you would speak through me, that, Father, uh, as we look at the book of 1 Peter, we would realize that it is timely. It's exactly what we need to hear at this moment in time. And, Father, I pray that every one of us would uh, bring hearts ready to hear what you have to say to us, that we would want to take what we hear and apply it to our lives and let it change us, that, Father, we could live godly lives in the midst of a very ungodly world. We need your help. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given us your spirit and that you've given us these brothers in Christ. And may we support one another over the weeks ahead as we begin to, to learn what it is you've called us to and what that calling should look like in everyday life. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, before we uh, launch into First Peter, you guys know we live in kind of difficult times, right? Uh, I can't remember a time that was more bizarre than this time that we live in. Um, everything is just kind of upside down and crazy. And so this morning I just opened up USA Today, the app on my phone, and went to the uh, news you need to know. And, and just to give you an idea, you know, here are the headlines. Is Moscow meddling in the presidential election? I'm not sure why they would bother, but um, the second one is Trump-Clinton clash on leadership qualities. Not sure how either one of them would clash on leadership, because I don't think either one of them are a leader. Apple is buying time to the next big thing. Who cares? Uh, let's see. Uh, Powell email advising Clinton on personal emails released. Obama says work must continue to resolve disputes in the South China Seas. It goes on and on, and then... Probably the one that's going to concern most of us and uh, really bothered me is regular sex is healthy for older women, riskier for older men. <laughs> we live in a sick world. <laughs> it's not fair. It's just not fair. You younger guys laugh now. You just laugh. Go ahead. Your day's coming. Well, if you got your Bibles, open them up to First Peter. My whole point is, guys, this is a difficult day we live in. These are difficult times. We're surrounded by a lot of ungodliness. It seems to be increasing daily. What are we supposed to do about it? And how are we supposed to live in the midst of it? Well, First Peter is going to answer that, those questions in, in a profound way. If you've never studied the book of First Peter, um, it's, it's a little book, and yet it's jam-packed. And, and so we're just going to dig into it this morning, and we're going to go through the whole book over the next 10 weeks. But... This morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. So I just want to read that, and then we'll kind of launch into it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and receive and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So that's just the introduction. And you can tell Peter's uh, a lot like Paul. He's, he's a little bit verbose. Um, it's a little hard to tell what he's talking about sometimes. And so we're just going to kind of dig into it and see what he's trying to tell us. But to kind of set this up, I want to go to uh, one of Paul's letters, and it's 2 Timothy, and you're probably familiar with this passage. He warned Timothy that in the last days, and we live in the last days, the last days are since Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended on high, we have been living in the last days. So we are in the last days. He told Timothy, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. That's the time we live in. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, I don't know about you, but that does describe the time in which we live. And it describes a lot of the people maybe we work with live near. Um, that's the day we live in. And he says, avoid such people. That's hard to do in this day and age because they're everywhere. They're all around us. And so we live in these last days. And this is a um, secular viewpoint. This is from a lady named Susan Danish. So in the Huffington Post back in 2015, listen to what she says. Sometimes it's hard not to be absorbed and disturbed by the news of the day, mass killings, unpredictable violence, economic uncertainty, intolerance of others' religious beliefs, and personal freedoms, and regional wars that devastate whole countries and displace millions of people. And that's not even talking about political strife here at home, which is increasingly strident, belligerent, and ultimately dangerous. That's our world, right? That's what we live in. You can't turn on the TV. You can't get on the internet and look at the news. You can't listen to your radio and not hear this every single day and wonder what is going on and how are we supposed to live in the midst of this? How are we supposed to live godly lives when we're surrounded by ungodliness? Well, that's what the book of 1 Peter is all about, and it's, what, it's the reason he wrote the letter to begin with, because the people he was writing to were living in very difficult times. So the question I'm asking as we go into the study is how do you live the Christian life within this context? You know, you can go to church, which most of us do on Sunday. You can come to a Bible study, which I'm glad you're here. But how do you live the Christian life 24 hours a day, every day in this context when you're bombarded and surrounded by all of this stuff that's going on? How do you maintain your faith? when you're, you're surrounded by people who don't believe what you believe and, and increasing hopelessness. You know, suicide rates are up. Despair is up all around us. There's, there's been an article uh, in, in the USA Today talking about how um, good it is that 
more and more celebrities are coming out about their depression. And yesterday I read that um, Bruce Springsteen has struggled with deep depression for over 30 years. And, and it's good that they're coming out, but it's, you're seeing an increase in depression, people struggling with hopelessness and despair and what's going on in this world. And you're seeing young couples who don't want to have children because they don't want to bring children into this world. Why? Because the hopelessness. Why would I want to bring a child into this world? Well, as we look at 1 Peter, you know, we got to figure out, okay, who wrote 1 Peter? What do you guys think? I think it's Peter. Here's why I think that, because that's whose name is on it. You know, what's interesting, though, is that there are so many commentaries that argue about he didn't write it. Peter didn't write it. And the reason they say he didn't write it is because the, the, the language in the Greek was too sophisticated for Peter. And Peter never could have spoken Greek as eloquently as what's written in this letter. Um, but none of them ever met Peter. Never, none of them ever talked to Peter. They don't, they don't know how educated Peter was. I know that uh, when Peter was preaching after the resurrection of uh, Christ, they were blown away at his eloquence. So I think he was a little bit more educated than they gave him credit for. Um, I believe Peter wrote this letter, and I believe it because his name's on it. I believe it because it was included in the canon of Scripture. It's been thought to be the letter written by Peter since day one, in spite of those who might argue and say it's not. Uh, I think it was written by Peter. And it's written to, and we get this from the very first verse, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And we'll dig into that a little bit more in just a second. So it's written by Peter. It's written to a specific group. Uh, we're told in the opening verses where they live. And they're people who are going through difficulty much like we are, living in difficult days, difficult times. And the key verse for this entire book is, is this, actually two verses, 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, that verse has always bothered me. Why? Because it sounds way far-fetched. Too elusive, too hard to reach. It basically says you've got to be holy like he who called you is holy. Now, who called you? Well, God. So I got to be holy like God. Well, that already sets the bar way too high for me. And then he says, and be holy in all your conduct. Now, you all know that I'm a Greek scholar, and in the Greek, the word all means what? All. All your conduct. We don't get to cherry pick and go, well, when I'm at church, I have to be holy. But when I'm at work, I can, I can be whoever I want to be. We've all played that game, right? Trying to live the two lives. I was an expert at that in high school. My dad was a pastor. I was in New York. He was a Southern Baptist pastor, which is a real oddity in New York. And I went to a high school where nobody I went to church with went to my high school. So at church, I was holy in all my conduct. Why? Well, because my dad was there. At school, I was unholy in all my conduct. Why? Because nobody saw me except people I hung out with. I lived a double life. Well, that's not what he's telling you and I to do here, right? He's telling you to live holy in all your conduct, all your conduct, and to be holy like God is holy. That ought to concern us. It ought to scare us. It ought to make us feel like, well, 
I don't know that I can pull that off. But he wouldn't tell us to do it if it wasn't possible. So really, everything we're going to be talking about over the next 10 weeks is how you and I can live holy in the midst of unholiness. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to increase over the days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead. One of the words he talks about a lot in this letter is conduct, the idea of your behavior. And the Greek word is literally behavior, the manner in which you live your life. It's your deportment, how you conduct yourself in daily life. And what's interesting about this particular word and and the way it applies to you and me is I can fake it for so long and then it comes out. I can only play the game for so long until the real me comes out. I'll give you a case in point. When I was working in the advertising industry, um, everybody I worked with knew I was a believer. And I worked really hard to maintain a believing um, face in front of those I worked with. And at lunch, when they would go to the uh, strip club to eat lunch, I would not go. And they said, well, why aren't you going? I said, well, uh, it's not exactly how I want to spend my lunch at a strip club. Well, they have great food. And I said, I don't care. I don't want to go to the strip club. <laughs> and so at work, I was always trying to maintain, I tried to, you know, not cuss like they cussed, laugh at the jokes they, they told. And, and one day, I was doing so well with this, and one day, a group of us got tickets to go to the Ranger game. And uh, my son was probably, my oldest son was probably 12 at the time. And uh, I had never cussed in front of my kids, ever. Was proud of it. Now, I cussed. I just didn't cuss in front of my kids. So I asked my son if he wanted to go. He says, yeah, I'd love to go. Well, three other guys from the office, my son, me, piling my car. We drive to the old stadium. And, and I was waiting in line because I had a parking ticket And there was a line I had to get in, and nobody would let me in the line. And it was just bumper to bumper, and I'm trying to get over, and nobody would let me in, and I'm just starting to get steamed. And and they're in the back, and and I didn't know this, but the three guys in the back seat were watching me. And it's almost like they knew something was going to happen. And they started going, now, go now, go now. And I'd kind of go, and the person cut me off, and I'd I'd get more agitated. and, and, And finally there was an opening. And all three at the same time said, go now. So I went and the guy in front of me stopped and I slammed on the brakes and my son's sitting in the front seat right next to me. And I just let out a string of expletives. And my son just kind of, you know, big, big eyes just staring at me like, just dad, what happened? And I, I was just mortified. And the three guys in the back were rolling in laughter. They thought it was great because my guard had come down and they saw me and my son saw me, the real me that I'd been trying to hide from my son for so many years. And I, I say that because that's, that's what we struggle with, right? I can try to control my conduct. I can try to live a certain way, but if it's not real, if it's not coming through the power of the Holy Spirit, it will get exposed. The truth will come out. And so his concern is that your conduct is part of your life that God impacts throughout your life, every area of your life. And this is something he's going to talk about over and over again. And here are the words he's going to use. Just look at some of these words. 
abstain. You know what that word means, right? Don't do it. Just stop. Put away. Take off. Get rid of those things. He's going to talk about be subject to godliness and not be subject to the world. Stand firm in the midst of everything going on around you, all the chaos, all the confusion. He's going to talk about things like holiness, right? He's already called us to be holy as God is holy. Well, he's going to bring it up over and over again. He's going to talk about suffering, which none of us really want to talk about, right? I hate suffering. I don't mind if you suffer. I just don't want to suffer. And when you're suffering, I love to come alongside you and encourage you and tell you everything I don't know about suffering, but that you should know. But see, we don't want suffering. He's going to talk about faith in the midst of suffering. He's going to talk about hope in the context of suffering and humility. Another one I don't really want to talk about. All of this has to do with two things, your conduct and your character. How you live your life, but how you live your life comes from what? Your character. What's in here? Because if you don't fix what's inside, your behavior becomes just this facade that ultimately will be made known. People will see the real you. It's like the, the, the statement that, you know, you got to squeeze the toothpaste tube to see what comes out. And when you get squeezed, when I get squeezed, that's when people see what's really inside of you. The anger, the resentment, the lack of faith, the bitterness. So he's going to talk about conduct and character all throughout this, this book. And he's going to use the word called all over and over again. And here's just several references. He who called you, him who called you, to this you have been called, to this you were called, who has called you. See, calling to Peter and to the scriptures is huge. Now, I don't know what you do for a living, but whether you're a dentist, whether you're unemployed, whether you're a day laborer, that is not your calling. That's how you gain income but it's not your calling. As a believer, you have a calling, and he's going to talk about that. Your, your job could change, right? I'm, I'm now a pastor. I used to be in advertising. That's two different things, two radically different things, but my calling has never changed. I've been called by God, and I have a purpose, and you have a purpose, and he's going to talk a lot about that. I love this from Oz Guinness, his book called The Calling. He says, our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. You have been called by God into the family of God for him, to him, and by him. That's why you exist. First and foremost, we're called to someone, God, not to something such as motherhood, politics, or teaching, or to somewhere such as the inner city or the outer, outer Mongolia. You have been called to God. Now think about that. That's not how we live our lives, right? We don't wake up in the morning with the idea that I've been called to God. No, I've been called to my job. I've been called to get up, get dressed, go to work. I've been called to be a good dad. I've been called to be a good husband. Those things are true, but first and foremost, you've been called to God. Then he goes on and says, our secondary calling, considering who God is as sovereign, is that everyone, everywhere, in everything should think, speak, live, and act entirely for him. And I think that's really the essence of the book of 1 Peter is that everything I do, everyone, everywhere, and everything should think, speak, live, and act entirely for who? 
Um, the Puritans used to refer, refer to it as living your life for an audience of one. I live for him. I live my life in his eyes, for his benefit, for his glory, with him in mind. And that's what Peter's talking about when he talks about conduct, your conduct. Well, he says in verse 1 that his audience are these elect exiles. Now, who are the elect exiles? Um, we're going to kind of take this apart in two, two parts. He calls them elect and he calls them exiles. And we're going to take number two first because it's the easier one. Exiles. Well, in the Greek, it means stranger, foreigner, alien, somebody who doesn't belong. You do not belong here, okay, is the essence of what he's going to say. A couple of weeks ago, we had a young lady stay in our home for three weeks. She's 20 years old. She's a Muslim. She lives in Ohio. She's from Saudi Arabia. Uh, my wife met she and her husband on an airplane coming back from Dubai, and uh, they had just gotten married. She spoke no English. This was three years ago. And um, she was in the full burqa, just her eyes showing. And my wife, because this is my wife, struck up a conversation. Well, she could only talk to the husband because he spoke English. She said nothing because she didn't speak English. And plus, she was extremely shy. And all my wife could see was her eyes. And they fell in love with my wife. And so they have been in our home. They have come down and visited. They are very, very devout Muslims. And this last month, she came, he had to go back to Saudi Arabia, and she came and stayed with us for three weeks. She now speaks English, but she still wears all the covering, and it, it was fascinating just having her in our home. We brought her to church every Sunday. She was on the front row the Sunday Doug Cecil threw Muslims under the bus, and, uh, <laughs> and I don't fault him for it. He just basically said, they're deceived. And he's right. But we had some interesting conversations on the way home. Um, but here's a question I asked her. I said, would you, what's it like living here? And she goes, I don't fit in. She goes, she's going to the University of Cincinnati. And she said, um, when we have study groups, nobody wants to be in my study group. I said, why do you think that is? She goes, well, look at me. It's the way I dress. It's what I represent. Nobody wants to be my friend. Nobody invites us into their homes. And she said, that's why we love your family, because you just include us as part of your family. And it got me to thinking about what would it be like if one of my daughters moved to Saudi Arabia as a Westerner, and what would it be like? And would she be accepted? Would she be looked down upon, especially if they found out if she, she was a believer? See, that young girl living in the United States is a stranger, a foreigner, and an alien. And even when we would bring her to church, it was just fascinating to watch people's eyes. Because, again, she's got the full covering on, and they're like, what is she doing here? She doesn't belong here. Nobody was rude to her. I'm not saying that. But she's a foreigner. She's an alien. And that's the point he's trying to make to you and I. We do not belong here. We are foreigners in this land. That's why he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You ever thought about your life that way? That you, this, You're in exile. You do not belong here. We've talked about this before. You belong somewhere else. You have a different home, a home to which you are going someday, but right now you're stuck here. You're in exile, and you're to live holy and differently. 
So he's writing to believers, and I believe he's writing to predominantly Gentiles who come to faith in Christ and who are living, trying to live Christian lives in an unchristian context and world and culture. They're strangers. They're aliens. See, in that day and age, when you came to faith in Christ, it would be like if that young lady accepted Jesus Christ and went back to Saudi Arabia. How do you think she would be received? Not well. She probably wouldn't be received at all. She would be disowned. She would be kicked out of the home. In some countries, she would be stoned. She would be executed. But see, these people were living in, foreign, in their homeland, but they were now, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, were now outcasts. They were aliens. They were strangers. Why? Because they were now citizens of a different kingdom. They were not accepted. See, you and I can live Christian lives still in this world. It's getting harder, but I can be a Christian in this world and not really catch a whole lot of flack unless I live it really vocally. If I'm just a nominal Christian and people know I go to church and maybe they see me pray over my meal, but I don't really talk about it and I don't witness, then I'm really not a problem to them. They'll, they'll leave me alone. But in this context, when they came to faith in Christ, most of them were, were disowned. Most of them lost their family connections. Many of them lost their jobs. So they were under some pretty tough pressure. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 9, he calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession. That refers to you and I as well, right? We all know this verse. We're chosen by God. There's that word again. We're chosen. We're a priesthood. We belong to him. We're a holy nation. We're to live differently in this context. The problem we have is that too often we get absorbed into this context and we become like the world around us. And yet if you look at this room, look at all the men in this room and what kind of an impact we could have. This is a small army, right? We could make an impact in this world if we would take seriously what Peter is saying in these verses. To see ourselves as aliens and strangers in this land and citizens of a different kingdom. Edmund Clowney, in his uh, commentary on Peter, he says, Like Israel in the wilderness, the New Testament people of God are aliens and pilgrims. They make their way through a world that is becoming increasingly more hostile. Yet they are not wandering beggars cast off from their possessions. They hold a sure title to the inheritance God has given them. See, that's the attitude I need to have. That's the attitude you need to have, that I am an alien, I'm a pilgrim, I'm working my way through this place to get to another place where I belong, where my inheritance is, where my hope is. And so you're going to see throughout this letter that he's always talking about the future. He's always talking about what's to come and encouraging us not to get too bogged down on what is, the present versus the future. So what's this thing about elect? And this is where it's going to get dicey. This is where I'm going to probably get emails. This is where I'm probably going to lose a few of you who may not come back because you're either going to disagree with me or you're going to think I'm a heretic. Um, what does he mean by elect? Well, here's what the word literally means. Picked out, chosen. Picked out, chosen. Be like if you were going to have a pickup game of basketball and you're going to choose sides and each captain got to pick, I pick him, I pick him, I pick him. And if you're like I was in junior high and high school, you were probably the last one picked. And, but somebody picks you, right? He made a decision. That's what that word means. He picks, he chooses. It's a decision. He's telling us that they, these people he's writing to, were handpicked by God. 
chosen by God. Why would he tell them that? Well, A, because it's true. B, because it should be an incredible point of encouragement because they're sitting there going, what in the heck have I signed up for? What have I done? I've placed my faith in Christ. Now everything is against me. My family's against me. The world's against me. I, I, I don't make as much money as I used to make. I don't have as many friends as I used to have. And he says, you were handpicked by God. God's involved in this. And he's going to use this word, elect or chosen, over and over again to encourage them that you have been chosen by God. Look at verse 1 and 2. I'm writing to God's chosen people. There's that word. God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. God the Father knew you. Your translation may say through his foreknowledge. He knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. So again, what is he talking about? God chose you. Elsewhere in the scripture, it said, even before you were born, he chose you. Now, everything in us struggles with this concept. Everything in us is like, wait, 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 wait. No, no, I chose. It was my decision. I placed my faith in God. And yes, from your perspective, that's what happened. But the scriptures seem to teach that unless God gives you the ability to choose, you won't choose. Why? Because you're dead in your trespasses and sin. You are incapable of doing anything good. And if you can't do anything good, how in the world could you choose Jesus Christ? So what he says is that you have been chosen. Now, how do you reconcile this with free will? We're not going to get into that this morning. But guys, what I want to tell you is that I do not believe free will even exists in the concept that we have it. Now, when I was seven years old, yes, I did choose Jesus Christ as my Savior. But what made it possible for me, even at seven years old, dead in my trespasses and sin, totally incapable of doing anything good, how did I choose to do that? God enabled me. His Spirit regenerated me, opened my eyes so that I could see the reality of the gift being offered to me. And it says... I knew you. Now, that doesn't mean God looked down through history with his kind of x-ray vision and saw, oh, look, Ken's going to accept me. It's, it's the formal word is prescience. He looked forward and saw, oh, yeah, Ken, and, you know, at seven years old, he's going to accept me. So I know that. That's not what this is talking about. This is something that God ordained. Listen to what uh, Thomas Constable, former uh, prophet DTS says, when Peter wrote that God chose according to his foreknowledge, he did not mean that God chose the elect because he knew beforehand. In other words, he looked down through history that they would believe the gospel. God chose them because he determined that they would believe the gospel. See, God chose. Why is he telling this to these people? Why should it resonate with you and I rather than struggle with it and go, oh, I don't, I, I don't like that. You know what? The worse it gets, the more you ought to be glad that God chose you. And that in this struggle, as you struggle with life, you can go back to the fact that he chose you. Even Austin, Logan's brother, as he goes through this paralysis, broke his neck, paralyzed from the chest down, young, athletic guy, 
who is a believer in Jesus Christ, even as he goes through that suffering, he needs to be comfortable with the fact God chose you and God has a plan for you and God's not done with you. Otherwise, what happens? You're going to start, where's God in all of this? Why did God do this to me? Why does God hate me? Why is God punishing me? But see, what he's trying to get him to understand is that God chose you. He chose you long before you were ever born, and he sees value in you, and he has called you to something. Look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has caused you, me, to be born again. He is the cause he is the one who made it possible, who by God's power are being guarded. See, it's all about God's power. And when we start making it about our power, our decision, our choice, my will over God's will, we miss the whole point of salvation, that God is sovereign. Their salvation, Peter says, was God's choice. Even their decision to accept Christ was up to God. The ability to do that was given to them by God. See, that's the grace and mercy of God. Because if God doesn't do that, guess what? Nobody comes to faith. Nobody comes to faith. First Thessalonians, Paul says this. We know, this is really important, listen to this. He says, we know with a certainty, brothers who are loved by God, writing Christians, that he has chosen you. What's, what's Paul say? We know this about you Christians that God has chosen you. How does he know that? Well, he explains. Because our gospel, we shared the gospel. It came to you not only in word. We preached it. You heard it. But it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, we came, we preached, you heard, and you were changed. We know he has chosen you. How does he know? Because their hearts were changed. They believed. They heard the gospel. They were convicted by the gospel. They were changed by the power of the gospel. But what's, what's in this verse that's not there, but it's inferred? Well, some didn't. Some heard the very same words. Some were not convicted. And some went away unchanged, right? It happens every day. There are those who hear the same gospel you and I heard and walk away unconvicted and unchanged. Why? Is it because they're stupid? No. Is it because we were smarter? I doubt it very seriously. God's involved in this process. And so what he's telling them is that God's call is always effectual. When God calls, it works. When God calls a man, he accepts. Now, do I have a role to play? Yes. But God is the agent behind it. And so this is why he's telling these people to, you got to keep going back to the fact that you've been chosen by God. You've been called by God. Again, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. So God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit are all involved in this process. God ordained it. The Holy Spirit accomplishes it by regenerating us. And it produces belief in Jesus Christ. And guess what? We're cleansed. We're cleansed from sin. That's what happens. And God is the agent behind that event. So he tells them, you're elect, you're called, you're chosen. And when he talks about this calling, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. See what he's saying there? Three times in the bold, it says, to a living hope, to an inheritance, for a salvation ready to be revealed. What's the emphasis? Future. A living hope, hoping something yet to happen, inheritance that's being held for you in heaven into a salvation ready to be revealed. But wait, I'm already saved. Yes, you have placed your faith in Christ. He has chosen you. You're in Christ. But guess what? Your salvation is not yet complete. How do I know that? Because you're still sitting here. And you still have a sin-soaked body you're dealing with. You still have a sin nature. But there's a day coming when that will no longer be true. And so there's a future aspect to our salvation. It's all about our future reward. And he's trying to get them to focus on the reality of the future, eternity versus right now. And see, that's hard for me, right? It's hard for me to live in this context, in a temporal world, with my eyes focused on the future. But that is the key to surviving this. See, if you're all angst out about who's going to win the election, and no matter how you look at it, it it's negative either way you're going to remain angst out, stressed out, maxed out, even after the election, unless you have a future hope, unless you're focused on the right thing, eternity. Verses 6 and 7, in this, this hope, this future, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, right now you're going through trials. I don't know what they are. Everybody has them. Yours may be worse than mine. They may be less than mine. But you, if you're not in a trial now, you will be in one. Hate to break the news to you. That's the world in which we live. Why? Because those trials test the genuineness of our faith and our hope. And what are we really relying on? Is it your strength, your health? Is it your money? Is it your job? Guess what? My hope needs to be somewhere else. My hope needs to be in the future on the salvation that is yet to come. And so right now I'm going through various trials. So as I go through trials, whatever your trials may be, how do I keep focus on the hereafter as I live in the here and now? When everything seems to be going south, when things are so difficult, how do we stop all the trials of life from distracting us and getting us off the true focus. That's what he's going to talk about in these verses that are to come. What's, what's it look like for you and I to truly live as a stranger here and not like we belong here? Because here's what I think is wrong with the church today. Not just Christ Chapel, but the church in general. Too many of us like it here. We're totally at home here. We're content here. And heaven's like icing on the cake. We're not really sure what it looks like. Not sure it's better than what I have here. Well, if that's your attitude, you, you've got to learn to live as a stranger here. You've got to learn that your hope is somewhere else. So this idea of conduct, this idea of character is huge all throughout 1 Peter. And he says, R.C. Sproul says, Peter is saying that the present we endure must be understood in the light of the glorious future that God has raised for us. See, God's got something greater for you. God's got something greater for me. The future is far greater than the present. So... What's the subtitle of this whole lesson? A radical response to redemption. How should we respond to the fact that we've been chosen by God, that we are sons of God? 
How should an awareness of our future redemption change the way we live in our present circumstances? How do we live differently in this world, in the present age? He says, you haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. You don't see him, but you believe in him. You rejoice in him. Why? Because we know there's a day coming when he comes back, when our salvation is made complete. And he talks about this salvation. It's the very salvation the prophets talked about, that they prophesied about, that they said was coming. And it's still not yet complete because Jesus Christ has not yet returned. And before Jesus left this planet, what happened to him? He suffered. Jesus had to suffer before he went through glory. Now, when you, when you go through suffering, what do you do? What's the first question out of your mouth? Why is this happening to me? Why is God doing this to me? I don't deserve this. See, Jesus suffered before he was glorified. And that is the pattern throughout scripture. That's the pattern for you and I. It was predicted by the Old Testament that he was going to suffer. He was the suffering servant long before he was the victorious one. And you and I are going to go through suffering. He had to suffer and die. And in a sense, you and I are what? Dying to self as we live in this earth. Giving up the things that we think are so important for something that is of greater importance, our holiness, our Christ-likeness. So humility has to precede glorification. It tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ had to become a man. He had to die a sinner's death before God exalted him, resurrected him, and put him at his right hand. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to us. See, some of what I'm going through and what you're going through right now is you learning humility, you learning to humble yourself before God and trust that he knows what's best for you. I don't like everything that happens to me, but I do want to learn that God knows what's best for me and he is trying me and testing me in order that he might perfect me and perfect you. So I've given you this, this little chart just to help you understand that we, we live in the gospel gap. I'm not going to spend any time on this. Just go back and look at it. Guys, we live in the gospel gap. We have been saved. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have been saved. You have received salvation. Your sins have been forgiven, but you have yet to receive glorification. We're in the middle. And in that middle, we have to live set apart. We have to learn discipline and, and receive instruction. We have to have our works redeemed. The things that we do have to be redeemed by God daily. We're being delivered from sin's power. I deal with sin in my life every day, just like you do. But he is increasingly delivering me from its power. And I'm being set apart, consecrated to him every day. That's the world in which we live right now. So here's your discussion questions. You probably won't get to all three of these. And depending on your table shepherd, you may not get to any of them. Because he'll come up with his own. But just listen, in what way should our future glory impact our present circumstances? If we really start thinking about that's where I'm to belong, that's my home, how should it change the way I live now? Why would it be so important that we see ourselves as aliens and strangers in this earth? How would it change the way you live, how you look at your life, your job, your circumstances? And then finally, what does Christ's suffering and glory have to do with how we view our earthly existence? He suffered. He was glorified. What has that got to do with me? What has that got to do with you? Let me pray for you, and then you guys get busy with your discussion. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the willingness to be here. I pray, Father, that you would 
uh, speak around the tables through these men as they talk with one another. I pray for a spirit of honesty, openness, transparency. Father, this is something we all struggle with, how to live godly in the midst of ungodliness, how to conduct ourselves as sons of God in an ungodly world. And Father, would you move mightily today in the discussion around the tables and help the guys to open up, share, and encourage one another. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have fun.